This episode is brought to you by Hyperice, the leader in advanced warm-up and recovery technology. They have tons of innovative products, like Venom-heated wearables to help soothe sore back muscles, Normatec compression boots to speed up recovery and increase circulation, and Hypervolt massage guns to improve mobility. Loved by athletes like Naomi Osaka and Erling Holland. Try them yourself. Get 10% off your order with the code MOVE at hyperrice.com. Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the SoxProspects.com podcast, the web's number one source for information on the Boston Red Sox from top to bottom, from Fort Myers to Worcester, across the Pike to Fenway, and all stops in between. Thank you for listening. My name is not Chris Hatfield. I'm the host of the Sox Prospects podcast, and I'm joined by this episode by Chris Clegg. Thanks for joining us, Chris. Uh, Looking forward to some more baseball talk today. Definitely. uh, Looking forward to doing some more regular shows with you guys. Uh, Always enjoy chatting, especially get to hang out with you when you're down here in Greenville and uh, be hanging out with you in Fort Myers in about a month's time. So that'll be a lot of fun. I'm looking forward to that and uh, looking forward to some good Sox prospect chat today. Yeah, definitely. I'm uh it's, it's always fun to catch a game. And now, um, you know, as you said, it's, it's baseball is upon us. So we're going to be seeing live action in less than a month. So that's definitely a, that's really exciting. Um, before we get into that, um, if you enjoyed the show, there are some ways we can uh, you can support us. First, spread the word. Tell a friend. Tell a relative. Uh, tell the person you run into when you go down to spring training to check out the SoxProspects.com podcast and the website. You can also help us by reviewing and rating us on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, and wherever you listen. And finally, you can also support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash SoxProspects. There you get some neat perks for your per-episode pledge. And, um, and of course, send your emails to podcast at SoxProspects.com because we want to talk about what you want to hear about. So, Chris, before we get into um, the Red Sox chatter, I wanted to talk about the baseball that it actually is being played because I, I know there are there are real games going on right now. It's not minor league or major league variety, but there's a lot of college baseball going on. And I think people um, people up here are pretty interested in what's going on with the college baseball world, especially when it comes to the pitchers, uh, which we'll get into later, a little bit later on, because we're going to have a pitcher centric episode today. The Red Sox have made some moves there today or recently in this offseason. What have you been watching with college baseball so far? And has anyone really stood out to you? Pretty much any game I can find on, you know, on the weekends and, you know, Tuesday night games are always fun. So caught a couple <laughs> last night, uh, Wake Forest went down to UNC Greensboro. So that's kind of wild to see, but yeah, I always uh, just love digging in, especially early, like this time of year when we don't have any other baseball to watch and I'll follow college baseball all year just for draft stuff. But yeah, this time is a, uh, one of my favorite times of the year for sure. So yeah, several guys that have caught my eyes so far. 
Uh, one's Charlie Condon at the University of Georgia, and I saw him last year. You know, he's pretty local to me. He had he was the NCAA Freshman of the Year last year, and he's a draft eligible sophomore this year. Ooh, now we're talking. Yeah, so he's putting up some pretty gaudy numbers pretty early. He had a 118 mile an hour exit velocity already. He had another home run last night. That was, he had two home runs last night actually. One was 112 off the bat. He's got like an 800 OBP through four games, just something stupid. <laughs> Been on base like 16 times. So uh, Charlie Condon's a lot of fun. Big six foot six bat. He's really versatile in the field too, which is interesting. So I don't know. I think that like he probably vaults into like top fives, but uh, going into the season, like he was probably in like the Red Sox range at like 12. Yeah. I think the stock probably gets a little high and who knows where the Red Sox go. Maybe they go an arm and we may talk about, you know, one of those arms I've got on my list, but they could go after. But who has stood out for you? Who's my, uh, your first guy on the list is somebody that stood out to everybody. I think it's been awesome, but yeah, I think he's probably the most viral college baseball player so far. Um, both for good reasons and bad, which I don't we we can maybe touch on briefly because I really don't like some of the things going on with Twitter with this. But um, my number one guy is Chase Burns, who is a transfer into Wake Forest this year. Wake Forest, obviously, as you mentioned, uh, top team in the country, even though they did go down to, in a midweek game yesterday. But he's a transfer from Tennessee, where last year he was, I would say, not very good compared to expectations. I think his ERA was over five. Just he, he didn't he, he got moved out of the rotation at some point too, um, I believe. And he's shown up at Wake Forest, and I, I, there was a lot of buzz coming into the season. He had a really impressive fall camp and was in the the scrimmages out in Arizona, was putting up some pretty gaudy velos, and he carried that over to his season debut. He was uh, six innings, three hits, no runs, one walk, 10 strikeouts, topped out at 101, uh, fastball sat 95 to 100, high 80s slider with a almost 3,000 RPM spin rate, change up at 89, throwing strikes, which was the big question, I think, because um, you know there's a, there's a little bit of effort in his delivery, but the stuff is insane. And he's someone who coming into the season, if you looked at draft boards, was squarely in like the middle of the first round. It looked like, and if he's throwing like this, there's no chance he gets out of the top ten. So, uh, but it's it's always fun watching a pitcher come out and kind of put it all together. And I think that's something that's happened with Burns so far. It's really clicked at Wake Forest to have quite the pitching apparatus and development staff down there. Um, that team is just loaded. Yeah, for sure. He's uh, nasty. Their pitching lab is something special there for sure. I mean, they're going to have what three first round pitchers this year, I think. Or yeah. Yeah. Hartle and Michael Massey could go first round. Maybe, maybe well. not first round, but like, yeah, maybe top three rounds. And then, I mean, their lineup too, they have multiple other, you know, top three round picks. So yeah, that team's loaded. Yeah. The, the video stuff you mentioned is interesting where there was some controversy surrounding that this weekend and we don't have to get deep into that, but it was interesting because Burke Granger, who works for D1 baseball, was down there all weekend and putting a lot of film out on Twitter. That and, he shot himself, we should say. Yes, he shot all the film and posted. And then Raycom Sports came in and filed copyright claims on all of those. So like the videos were like taken down. I know it's being fault right now, but it's just crazy because like, you know, people like us that grind at the ballpark and post film, like it's just interesting to see like, what does the future of this look like? Obviously, yeah. I that this is resolved quickly and not an issue moving forward. I know Burke said that Wake Forest was actually pretty against uh, Raycom doing that themselves. Like this, that's promoting Wake Forest themselves. Like there was, I think the Chase Burns video had like 1.5 million views. So well, just yeah. 
promotion of the game, Wake Forest and Chase Burns himself. And then, you know, a company that hasn't even tweeted in three years comes in and for copyright claims. It's just kind of ridiculous. Yeah, no, I it's it's definitely a concern. And I, and I, I always go back to I, I look at what what's with like the NBA. And I feel like the NBA is just does a very good job with viral stuff. And the reason they do that is they just don't care about their the this video that could puts up online. And I think you contrast that with like what the NFL does or which they don't. It doesn't matter what the NFL does. The NFL is a monster. They're so big. It doesn't really matter. But I, I think baseball, um, you know, we've seen you see it like they're pretty strict with their copyright claims. And and with college baseball, I feel like we haven't really seen it. So hopefully this isn't the norm because video like that is what makes it accessible to a lot of the fans. Um, you know, a lot of people aren't, especially up here. College baseball is not that big, even though Northeastern actually has a really good center fielder this year. But, uh, you know, the way you're going to a lot of people consume media these days is, you know, those short clips and college baseball, like watching Chase Burns throw an inning on a Twitter video is, you know, it's going to reach a lot more people that way than it will on, you know, cable TV or on, you know, streaming online. So hopefully that's something that gets sorted soon and we can continue to watch electric highlights like what uh, shot of Chase Burns. Who's your second guy that uh, you're kind of you're enjoying watching so far this season? This guy I actually think is in the Red Sox range, and I I have no clue. Like, you wrote the article about the Red Sox not drafting pitching yeah. change this year. And if so, I firmly believe that Brody Brecht of Iowa is in this range. He's quite interesting, big-time fastball, like touching triple digits. He has awesome stuff. There are some command questions. I think we yeah. saw six in that start this past weekend. Uh, he threw four and a third. It took 100 pitches to do so, 11 strikeouts, and just 53 strikes. So 53% strike rate's not great. But the upside and the talent are there for sure. He had a 57% whiff rate, 36% CSW. And the slider. That's called, stri- called strikes and um, whiffs. Sorry. Yeah. Just want to make sure in case yeah. someone. Good clarification there. So, yeah, I mean, the stuff is so good with Brecht, and he's been consistently talked about. He was great last year, too. And if the command is kind of harnessed a bit, then there's certainly a case he's a top 15 pick. And he's sitting right in that range that the Red Sox pick at 12. So if they do decide to go pitcher, I think Brody Brecht is certainly somebody that could be on their radar. Well, he he seems to check a lot of the boxes they've looked for in pitchers this offseason where he he's a big body, uh, two-sport guy, super athletic. He used to play football at Iowa, too, and I think he's given up football now. So he's just focusing on baseball for the first time. So there might be some untapped potential there. And um, more importantly, though, we've seen and we'll get to it in a little bit when we talk about the David Sandlin trade. They love big stuff, guys, and he's got big stuff. Um, you know, that that's the stuff that that's the type of pitcher the Cubs have targeted. when Craig Breslow was there, you look at guys like Cade Horton, Jackson Ferris. You know, they're all guys, big fastballs, um, you know, big swing and miss secondary pitch also. So I, I think Brecht is someone to definitely keep an eye on if, if the Red Sox decide to go that route with pitching in the middle of the first round with their first pick. Uh, my second guy is actually not a pitcher, um, but he's a familiar last name, and uh, it's Zach York, who is the younger brother of Red Sox second baseman Nick York. And the reason I like Zach York is because he just really hit, and it's fun to watch because it doesn't look like a normal baseball player. You know, where we talked about Brody Brecht, he's kind of what you expect when you when you put a baseball player on the mound. You know, if you if you're gonna like put the perfect uh, starting pitching or positional uh, prospect, you know, you're looking at someone six four, six five, like chiseled. Zach York is not that. Um, he's a big boy, and it's always fun watching big boys hit. Um, you know, you've seen the majors, guys like Dan Vogelbach have made a long career out of it. And if you can hit, 
they'll find a position for you. And I just like watching Grand Canyon because Zach York goes up there and he just rakes. And um, it's he's a good enough hitter that I think he's a legit draft prospect and someone who could go in the top 10 rounds. He's not going to be like a first rounder or a second rounder probably, but he's someone, you know, when you get in those middle rounds, I could see a team grabbing who can turn it, who could really uh, open some eyes when he comes up just because he's going to make a ton of contact and he's got some power. So he's someone that uh, I've enjoyed watching just because also it's it's a nice swing and it, it's it's fun watching familiar names go out there and get it done on the diamond. Yeah, he's a, a really fun one. I said that that frame's interesting in Washington. <laughs> it's just a unique, unique player. And uh, I don't know, I, 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 I you, you'll you'll notice there's a trend here in my last two, but I think it's fun watching guys who you don't expect to be baseball players who look who don't look the part go out there and, you know, perform really well. Yes, and that was Big Joe Davis in the in exactly. The, you know, Joe was, Davis was a legend. So yeah, he was like one of the <laughs> biggest fan favorites in Greenville for a long time. I hate he retired, but yeah. awesome guy. So last guy, another one I think's in the red fits in the Red Sox draft range is Seaver King with Wake Forest. He was actually a D two transfer from Wingate College in North Carolina, uh, but King put up some pretty huge numbers last year. And while at Wingate, it's like, okay, D2. But the underlying data was extremely strong on him. Some big-time exit velocities, good contact skills. He didn't have you know, an eye-popping weekend by any means, but I still believe that Seaver King is a first-rounder. And with a decent performance, I think he's a top 15-type draftee. So he was one that I really had a close eye on this weekend just because it's like, okay, you want to see how this guy's going to perform coming from a, a D2 school to now be into the – number one school in the country. So that's uh, always interesting. And he had some good at bats. The stat line didn't look great, but I thought he had some pretty good at bats and I think he'll settle in and be fine. So I like uh Seaver King a good bit. Yeah. And he, he's an interesting one too, because he's actually had a track record of success with wood bats already. He went to the Cape league last summer and was one of the best hitters there. He had 424, 479, 542. And I know he is a middle infielder, which joke insert joke here about that's all the Red Sox draft. But um, yeah, I think he's someone to keep an eye on and he's going to get a lot of there will be a lot of scouting looks at him by teams because he's going to be a wake force. And I think, you know, it's it's one thing to do it on the Cape. But now, you know, you're jumping up from, as you said, the Southern Conference, I believe, Wingate's in into uh, the ACC. So that's a pretty big jump for him. And um, I'm interested to see how it especially when we get into like SEC play or excuse me, ACC play later in the season, how he looks. My final player is. uh is Jason Reitz and he's a right-handed pitcher from St. Mary's and he's six foot nine and he is one of the tallest players I've ever seen throw a baseball that looks kind of normalish in a weird way like it's actually really fluid and um if you can look there's some really good video on uh on x or twitter whatever you're calling it these days of him pitching and striking out because he had a really good debut five innings three hits one run eight strikeouts and I just I watched it like 50 times because I get my mind can't comprehend someone that big throwing that many strikes. And that was the part that stood out because, I mean, I've seen six, nine guys, you know, guys that tall in pro ball before. Um, this is definitely before your time. But the Red Sox had a guy named Sven Heyer who uh, was signed out of the Netherlands. Who I think he was six, eight. But uh, so I had throw with Lowell and it was very funny because he would come out and he's huge. And then he was throwing like 84. But, you know. You take a chance on guys like that. It's really funky. Like I think the Giants have the guy Sean Hajeli, who's that tall. But um, yeah, just watch the video. If if look it up, Jason Reitz, uh, it's awesome. And uh, I'm excited to see uh, you know, if he's actually going to establish himself as someone who could be a legit draft prospect. If it's more just you know a fun college baseball story. But um, 
you know, we're in the we're in the time of the season where I'm not really I'm obviously watching, you know, the, the top guys and the draft guys, too. But it's also let's have some fun. You know, college baseball is supposed to be fun. You can only watch so many PFPs. So if you tell me I can watch, you know, some PFPs of the Red Sox or I can go watch Jason Reed's throw, I'm going to go watch Jason Reed's throw right now. So, yeah, that's the college baseball preview. Um, we talked a lot about pitching there and for good reason, because with the Red Sox, you know, that's been the hot topic. That's been what they've been going after this offseason. Craig Breslow and co completely revamped the pitching staff and they made another trade this week to acquire a pitcher. Um, the Red Sox a couple days ago shipped out John Schreiber, right-handed reliever, who's been with the team for a few, since he was claimed off waivers from the Tigers. And they sent him to Kansas City. And in return, they got David Sandlin, who's a 11th round pick out of Oklahoma in the 2022 draft. He signed for over slot, actually. I think it was $375,000. So we're talking about someone who who got you know, decent amount of money in the 11th round. And last year he started in low a, um, had a dominant performance there. And then he made it up to uh high a for two starts before his season was ended because of a oblique injury. So he's coming off an injury, but you were able to see him last year. So uh, can you talk a little bit about what you saw with David Sandlin last year? Yeah. So Sandlin was one of those that you, know, you don't really know much about. He was like a, Seventh, I'm gonna confirm seventh or sixth rounder out of like Oklahoma. Eleventh, eleventh, even okay. Yeah. So you, yeah, I was pulling up to confirm, but eleventh rounder out of Oklahoma. So those guys you never have like high expectations on, and like he was okay at Oklahoma. We didn't yeah, see a that, lot out. Yeah, he, he had like I I remember the only reason I remember is because a good friend of the show, Mike Monaco, called his college World Series game where he dominated um, against. I want to say it was against Tennessee or someone, but yeah. he had like. He had a really good game. He had double digit strikeouts um, and shut that like a really good lineup down. So that was really all I remember of him. But if you look at his season numbers, as you said, you know, five, five, nine ERA, one, three, seven, nine whip. Nothing really stands out there. No, no, no. And he's it's actually his birthday today. So happy birthday, David Sandlin, 23. And people are that's kind of the question. People are like, oh, he's old for the level. But he was drafted in 2022. So he's not that far removed. He has first full season of pro ball last year. Spent time in single A and high A. And then, you know, I've got those looks in single A Columbia. And of course, like that kind of college arm is just going to absolutely dominate. He has a big fastball. I mean, it's set around 96 consistently when I was seeing him. It had pretty good ride on it. I think he was sitting like 17 inches of vert on it. So, yeah, it's like a round average. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty good. Like, not bad. And it's going to blow away hitters when you're locating it well at the top of the zone. And that's what he did. He shows a good sweeper, like 10 inches of sweep on it. So that pitch I also thought was pretty solid offering. And then he has the splitter that's sometimes inconsistent, but when it's on, it is really nasty and it's really hard for hitters to pick up. Has some nice vertical movement that, you know, I think that, you look at the fastball slider and it's like, okay, this could be potential plus plus from both of those. And then you look at the splitter while inconsistent, it did have a 40% swing and miss rate on it last year, which is pretty impressive and really high chase rates too. So, you know, when it was on, he was missing a ton of bats with that. Here's the thing with Sandlin though, this off season, he came out and was putting up some pretty eye popping numbers while you know it was in a facility, you don't know how it's going to play in games. 
he was touching triple digits and he touched 21 inches of IVB, which is just insanely absurd to think about like that kind of fastball. Now he's not going to sit a hundred. Like I don't think anybody expects him to sit a hundred, but if he's sitting now 97 and the fastball is getting 19 to 20 inches of IVB, then we're looking at a totally different pitch. Like it's gone from being like pretty good to like, okay, this is a plus fastball now, at least in my opinion. So this will be what I'm really interested to see what he looks like in game action. Yeah. It's, you know, we take those with a grain of salt. I mean, everybody's going to some kind of facility in the off season, getting work and, and those best ones are the ones that are going to get posted. Like, you know, you're, you're not going to post if he threw 97 with 17 inches, but you're going to post the hundred mile an hour with 21. It's just a vert. So I'll be curious to see, but yeah, overall, I thought Sandler was pretty impressive, heavy strike thrower. He, you know, a ton of strikes in the zone and a ton of chase too, which I like to see. I mean, he threw strikes at a 67% clip last year and like MLB average is like 63 minor league average is a little lower. So well above average strike thrower, he walked just like 6.7% of guys. And with that stuff, like, I think that there's a starter profile in here for sure. Yeah. And when you said, when you're talking about his um, IVB, so just for frame of reference in the Red Sox system, the highest guys are, uh, is Luis Perales at 20.9 inches, Chris Troy at 20.8. And then other than that, um, they don't have a single minor leaguer in the twenties uh, currently. They, they Bradley Blaylock wasn't there, but obviously he was traded to Milwaukee. So yeah, we're talking about top of the scale um, induced vertical break, and that is the million dollar question. And, and I think what um, what I kind of need to see from him is how is his stuff going to look in the season this year? Because it's all well and good to do it in the off season. He said, you know, we we've seen it. You're not going to post the rough video or the rough bullpen outings. You're going to post the very best and. At his best, he's shown in the offseason this year that it's, you know, premium stuff. But, you know, can you do it in May? Can you do it in June? That's what we need to see. And um, that's the big question with him is, you know, you combine that with he, his injury. His He did have an arm injury last year. That's always a concern to me. And he did, you know, he only pitched. Um, he, did, he, he was facing, yes, he was 22. But as you said, you expect a college starter to go out against low, especially coming from a big school, to go out against low A hitters and dominate. And that's what he did. You know, he did exactly what he needed to do. Now let's see how it translates, you know, whether it be starting in Portland, which I think is actually definitely on the table, or Greenville. How is he going to look this season? Is that stuff going to translate? Is he going to be back, you know, 93, 96 like he was last year? Is he going to be sitting 95 to 97 like he has shown and topping out, you know, 99, 100 like he has this offseason? Those are the big questions and kind of where their variance comes in with him, because I think that he is a very exciting pitching prospect. It's just for a college guy, there's a there's a lot there's kind of a wide there's wide error bars here. Um, It's going to you know, what's the fastball going to look like? Assuming he's healthy, it seems like he is, you know, can he go out there and show he can throw a full and uh, full year of innings, things like that. But to go out and trade a guy like John Schreiber, who was good, you know, he had a almost a two war season two years ago but other than that he's been last year's 0.1 war he's had a couple other 0.1 war season you make this trade every day and it's not just a you don't do it for financial reasons i know that was kind of a common narrative was oh they're selling off already you know what kind of message does this send this is a baseball trade um baseball reasons trade if you can trade a a fungible middle relief depth arm because that's what john schreiber is you know he's a solid six seventh inning guy 
you can find those guys. The Red Sox have gone out and traded for a bunch of them, and I think it's noteworthy that Alex Cora talks about it in camp, that they feel good with guys like Isaiah Campbell, Greg Weiser, both of whom were acquired in trades this offseason. Um, they have options to replace John Schreiber on the roster. A guy like David Sandlin, they don't have a lot of guys with his type of upside in the rotation that combine raw stuff, strike throwing ability, and upside. You know, he's six four, he's two fifteen, checks the boxes there physically. Got three pitches. Well, he's got four pitches. He throws a curveball also. Granted, it's more like a show-me pitch. But he's got four pitches. Three of them can have shown bat missing ability. Checks that box there. Throws a ton of strikes. Another box checked. Like He checks a lot of boxes that a lot of guys in the York don't have. And so the ability that they were able to, to, to diversify from an area of strength to an area of weakness is a really nice move by Craig Breslow. And I think it shows it's shown with his offseason moves to what he's trying to fix with this team. I mean, everyone knew it going in. And I think with this trade and the other ones he's made, he's done a really nice job of reshaping this pitching staff, both with what's on the field and off the field heading into 2024, um, where there's a lot to look forward to. I think if you're a Red Sox fan, when it comes to what is going to happen with the pitching development and the pitchers themselves, you know, you've got him, you've got Richard Fitz, you've got Nicholas Judice, you've got a lot of new arms that we haven't had this kind of influx of talent in past years. And I think we're going to start to see guys take a really big step forward this season under this new, um, new regime. And that's what the Red Sox need at this point. You know, they have the bats. Now it's about finding the arms. And if you're not going to spend in free agency, you got to go out and get them via the draft or via trades. And, you know, obviously Craig Bressel hasn't had a draft yet, but He's gone out and done a really nice job with this trade. So I really like the Sandlin trade, and he's someone definitely that's going to be exciting to watch this season, um, starting in spring training and then beyond. Yeah, I just hit on the point of, you know, what are the Red Sox looking to do this year? If they're not looking to you know, compete this year, and I know nobody wants to hear that, but the reality is if they're setting themselves up for 2025, then this move absolutely makes sense. You obviously you brought in Liam Hendricks, who will be back for 2025. You've got him you know, ready to go, like a Michael Fulmer, similar case there kind of thing. And the the bullpen is, like, pretty solid, in my opinion. Like, you got Justin Slatten in the uh, Rule 5 draft, who is more than ready to pitch in a Major League bullpen. You got Isaiah Campbell from Seattle. Like, the Red Sox bullpen is fine. And yeah. like, this move you make 100 times out of 100 because the fact that you look at the the bullpen, okay, there's some depth there. Maybe it's not like flashy, studly names, but the bullpen's going to get the job done. And you get a guy who fills a void in the system where you severely need upside pitching prospects to take chances on. And David Sandlin fits that mold perfectly. You get him in an organization now that I think is, you know, with Breslow, his crew, like is going to do a great job with pitch development. And now you get a great arm in there, see what he can do, like, I, I like the trade personally a lot for the Red Sox. Yeah, I agree. And and I think the with Sandlin too, it's it's not just that you're you've got this good pitching development staff, but he's coming in at a high level where he ha he's hits these certain benchmarks where with a lot of pitchers, the Red Sox are are hoping they can get to the level that Sandlin is already showing with certain pitches, um, both like metrically and just what we see on the field, you know, velocity, things like that. Sandlin comes in with that baseline, and now you're giving him to this type of pitching development staff. It just has a higher ceiling than a lot of the guys who come in. You know, if you're going out and getting a guy who's throwing 90 to 93 with, you know, an average slider, there's only so much elevation that can be done there. With Sandlin, the bar is starting at a higher point, and that allows, just gives so much more upside. 
And with this team, as you said, that's what they need. You know, they don't need to develop another number five starter or another number four. I mean, they do need that also. But the goal here is they need to start churning out those guys who can be number two, number three starters. And Sandlin, there is a lot of variance here. Yes, he could end up being more of a reliever. He could end up being a back end starter. But at least he has the you can see you can dream on the potential and see the upside of him developing into that type of mid rotation to better starter that the Red Sox so desperately are in search of. Um, briefly, let's t- touch on a couple other things there. You, you did mention two two uh, signings they made, uh, Michael Fulmer and Liam Hendricks. And I think they were actually pretty interesting signings because you're talking about those are big pedigree arms. You know, Michael Fulmer was a former all-star, same with Hendricks. Both guys have been closers for MLB teams for several years, um, had a lot of success in those roles. And I think it's pretty interesting that they gone, they went out and devoted resources to guys who they're not going to pitch in 2024 or at least for most of the season, I think Hendricks has said he'd like to be back by the all-star break, but it gives them, you know, when you look ahead with, with, even without those guys, as you were talking about, they have a lot of right-handed depth options. They have a pretty good looking bullpen with Kenley Jansen, Chris Martin at the back end. And then you got the middle relievers, like some combination of Garrett Whitlock and Tanner Houck, uh, Justin Slate and Isaiah Campbell, Greg Weiser, Josh Winkowski probably slots in there though. I could also see him being developed as a starter. Then you look ahead, you know, end of the season, you've got Hendricks coming back next year. You could have Michael Fulmer coming back. You know, they're setting themselves up with a lot of cost-controlled arms there so that the bullpen is not something they're hopefully going to have to address for the foreseeable future with this group. And, and I think that is, that's a good way to do it. You know, you're, you're, you're creating depth both got, with guys you're bringing through the system and guys that you're rehabbing, you know, building that relationship with, and then with the eye towards 2025 and I just think it's it's been a really strong offseason for Craig Breslow with what he's done reshaping the pitching staff, especially with the limitations he's had to operate under. 100% agree with you. I think the moves are very smart, and I think they set the Red Sox up nicely in 2025. While nobody wants that, you want a contender in 2024. I think that with the eye on 2025, some moves that they're making, that makes sense. You go out and you spend next offseason – big time and put a contender on the field while having a really good farm system. And you'll have more of those prospects that are now ready. So yeah, I think that everything they're doing makes complete sense, but I know it's not popular in the fans eyes, but no, we'll see how it shakes out. Yeah. And um, I think that's a good transition to our next, our final topic of the day, which is building. We're talking a lot about, we talked a lot about what they don't have. I do think what's getting overlooked in this is, they actually do have some really interesting arms in the system already. And now kind of like what we talked about with Sandlin, the question is what do these guys need to do to take that next step as a prospect or what do they need to do kind of to start getting more recognition for what they are? Because, you know, when you look at the system we have right now, um, we have uh, four pitchers in the top 20, uh, Luis Perales, Wickelman Gonzalez, then the acquired Richard Fitz, David Sandlin. Um, just outside the top 20, we have Jordani Manegro and Hunter Dobbins. The rest of the guys are either really far away or kind of more reliever-ish. There's a couple other ones like Elmer Rodriguez, Cruz, Justin Slayton, Luis Guerrero, Angel Bastardo, et cetera. But I, I wanted to focus on those six because I think those are the guys where if you were looking for someone to step forward and move into that, what we talked about, you know, that top 10 uh, pitching prospect in the system, the kind of guy that starts getting some national recognition, I think the name is going to come from that list right there. And starting at the top with Luis Perales, um, what do you think is the most important thing for him in order to take that next step and kind of 
establish himself as a legit starting pitching prospect. Because right now, I, I think we're, we're in, you and I have both seen him uh, last year. We're in agreement that the future role is kind of uncertain with him. But what what do you think is the the area that the development staff is going to be focusing on with him and that he needs to do to take that jump? I think he's just got to command the fastball better. That's one of the biggest things that I saw was just the lack of command on the fastball specifically. And the fastball has some pretty good traits on it when you look at the you know, the underlying data. But the location is ultimately what cost him and like cost him to allow so many home runs. And that was really the biggest issue, especially in Greenville. We saw him allow eight home runs in 36 innings, eight starts, so about a home run per start. And that's far from ideal, and especially considering, and I know that you know, Salem plays a little more as pitcher park, but two home runs in single A across 13 starts. But Greenville is really not a huge hitter's park. Like it, I think it plays more neutral, if anything. But the fastball location was just poor. He would yeah. leave over the heart of the zone, and it would get flat at times. And when that happened, guys were just mashing it over the green monster. If I'm not mistaken, one of the starts I was at, he allowed like three or four home runs in that one start. I do want to look and confirm, but it was it was a home run fest. Actually, he only allowed two in a start, but it, they were back to back. So I must have been at both those starts. It was just like this is a lot where he it was two home runs and back to back starts. But it felt like that in Greenville he was allowing the big fly quite often. And I do think a lot of that kind of stemmed from just fastball location. And I mean, it, it sits 95, it's been up to 99. It's a good IVB pitch, like been up to 20 inches, but ultimately like just location, I think it's the biggest thing. He added that cutter. I thought the cutter was good, but it had inconsistent command as well. So really, I think the biggest thing for him this off season that I hope we see when we see him, you know, next month is that, he's really harnessed in on the command some and just the consistency of the strike throwing ability. And if he does that, then there's certainly starter potential here. I know he's smaller, but he's got the stuff. The stuff can play. It's just, can he locate that stuff well enough? Yeah. And, and on that actually, so last year uh, off his fastball, it was 1.14 home runs per nine innings. So fastball got hit pretty hard um as you said 30 he had a six almost a 16 percent walk rate using on the fastball like the strike throwing metrics were not great um that's definitely an error he, he needs to improve but as you said you know when it's on it it can work really well and i think another interesting thing with him is that he throws his fastball a ton it's uh he was like 62 percent usage with his four seam last year and if you're throwing it as much as he is, you cannot miss as often as he does. And I, I think that was kind of heightened at Greenville. In, against Salem hitters, it didn't really matter. You could get away with it because you can outstuff guys. But I think uh, Greenville was a good awakening for him or kind of showed him that as good as your stuff is, you have to be able to command it or you're going to get hit. It doesn't matter what level. Because um, minor league hitters, as you move up, they just get better, obviously. And it's now on him to adjust. And I think that that, that that's the key is if he can show consistency with his fastball, especially if he's throwing it that often, then you're talking about a guy that, okay, now we're, you know, now we can start dreaming on a starting pitcher because, and I think the what you talked about with the cutter also was interesting. And that was something he only used it around like 8% of the time last year, but he did not throw his changeup very much. It was sub 10% usage on his changeup. So he needed that third pitch to uh, complement his fastball and a slider. So if he can take a step forward with that, I think that that's another key step for his development uh, is to find that third a consistency with a third pitch to complement his top two. Because you can't be a two-pitch starter, or you can't unless you're Spencer Strider. And even you look at Spencer Strider, and he's gone out this offseason and added like a devastating curveball, apparently. So 
even the best pitchers in baseball, if they're going out and finding a third pitch in the offseason, guys, Strider's not alone. I think Hunter Green, Bryce Miller, like there's a bunch of guys who had success last year who are all doing it. That if you're a minor leaguer, you got to find a third pitch. And so it's going to be interesting too. One thing I'm going to be watching with Prowse is how does a slider, how does the changeup use uh, look, and what is the kind of how often is he using them? You know, does he show confidence in them, or is he just going to default back to his old ways of I'm a two pitch guy, especially in big situations? So that's something I'm definitely going to be interested to see uh, when we get into the season. The other top ten uh, pitcher right now is Wickelman Gonzalez, and I mean I feel like it's a pretty similar situation with him. Uh, where the stuff is really good, especially what he showed in double A. I thought he took a pretty big step forward with his stuff when he got up there last year. But the question is, is he going to throw enough strikes? And his fastball, his uh, strike throwing metrics for this fastball are actually worse than Morales's. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there's there, there were not a lot of strikes last season with him. Um, and, and as good as his fastball was in certain outings, like I saw him probably his best outing of the year as part of a no hitter. I think he still walked four guys in that outing. And as a smaller guy who, if it's his metrics are not as good as paralysis, like his IVB is in kind of the dead zone. Uh, it's like 15 inches, not where you want to be, which is something we'll talk about with another pitcher on here coming up. You have to be really fine with your command to get away with a pitch like that. It doesn't matter if you're throwing mid nineties. So I, I think with him too, it, it's finding a consistent release point, repeating your delivery, you know, across not just for three innings, but I need to see it for six in five, six innings in a given day. And then finding um, you know, finding that consistent location with his fastball. Because while he didn't have the same home runs problem Paralis did, the strike throwing metrics were just not there. And yeah, so it's gonna it's gonna be an interesting one with him, especially too, because he's in the upper minors now. You know, he's gonna I think he'll start in double A, but he's someone who I we saw it last year with a lot of pitchers like Shane Johan. They went from double A AA to triple A and the automated uh ball strike system just destroyed them. And that's something that I'm gonna be watching with Gonzalez when he gets up to triple A is how much of his strike calling is umpire error. Because when you watch double A umpires, he was he doesn't really know where it's going, so he's living on the edges. You know, there'll be the cross up where the catcher's catching it a little off the plate, but you're getting that call on double A. If he's not getting that tri- call in AAA, then I could see the walk numbers even going even higher than where they are. So that's the thing for me is I just need to see consistent strikes with him. Yeah, he is quite interesting. And it's almost like every start you get different results. It's a mixed bag from start to start as to what you get out of him. I do think that from like a pure stuff standpoint, I think that Wickham Gonzalez has the best stuff in the system. He has the big fastball you mentioned. It has some interesting characteristics, but the the secondaries are what's so good. And when the fastball is actually located well, it allows all of those secondaries to play up. The curveball is devastating. He When he's snapping it off and when he's burying it down the zone, he gets a ton of chase and whiffs on that pitch. It's just a consistency thing. The changeup, when he's throwing it well, it flashes a really good pitch with late movement, fading action, and he throws it to both-handed batters, which I thought was pretty interesting. Yeah. I always see the changeup. You know, a lot of righties are just throwing it to left-handed batters, but he's throwing it to both-handed batters, which is huge. So the slider, cutter pitch, like still needs some refinement, but I think it's a fine pitch. I think there's upside here, but you mentioned the strike throwing's interesting. There were starts where I'd see him where he was 
95 in the first and second. And then by the fourth inning, he was down to like 91. And then there were other starts where the Velo would hold the whole start. It's It was such a mixed bag. Every start, you never knew what you were going to get from Wickelman Gonzalez. Like you said, you may get six walks in a, an outing. He may knock it out of the second inning, or he may throw you know six scoreless. It's just the consistency is a big thing with him. And the strike throwing, as you mentioned, will obviously be a big sticking point. And when it, the numbers improved, like the first four starts of the season, he allowed 15 earned runs in 2023, yeah. uh, eight and two thirds, and he walked 16. Not good. Yeah. And there was a report from Alex uh, Spire, actually. That Spear. Said, Spear. Yeah. Apologies. Spear. Spear. <laughs> good friend of the, the podcast, too. Make sure we get that right. Spear. He said that he was dealing with some anxiety, struggling to eat or sleep. And so I wonder if, like, that was a major issue with the performance. And then he began, the team was really putting focus on the mental health and and some results followed. So, you know, I think Wickelman Gonzalez will be a fun one to watch this year. And yeah, the stuff's there, but can he be consistent enough? Can he throw enough strikes? We will see. Yeah, because he, he was an interesting one because you talked to a scout who'd go in and see him and you could legit get a different secondary pitch every time of which they, of that they like the best. And that can be, that's, can be a good thing and a bad thing. And it's a good thing because he actually will use multiple secondary pitches. He was about 10% usage with his slider for changeup was around 15 curveball was all just under 20%. So he's talking about, he's got three pitches that he, he is comfortable throwing. And then you contrast that. I Prowse is the best example. I mean, Prowse only had one pitch that he was throwing more than 10% of the time. So uh, the secondary pitch that is. So with Gonzalez, yeah, there there is a lot to like there. It's just about, as you said, finding that consistency with his secondary pitches, with his delivery, and then kind of getting that routine like he was in with Portland um, rather than what was happening at the start of the season, both on and off the field. So I, I think, though, that with those guys, there is just definite upside. It's just this is where the, the new staff is going to come in is, you know, what, what are going to be the point of emphasis here? What are they going to be tweaking here, whether it be pitch mix wise? release point like there's just so much that these guys have that raw ability kind of like what i was talking about with sandlin they have this nice starting point and now it's just about how is the staff going to come in and help them reach their potential and that that's what i'm most excited to see when we jump into spring training and beyond um i think the next two tier pitcher we can kind of go a little quicker here because we obviously we talked about david sandlin earlier the other one is uh richard fitz is the, the third guy in the in our rankings and he was obviously acquired from the yankees in the alex Verdugo trade he was someone i actually saw last year we talked about it on the podcast then but i think that with him it's going to be about finding that third pitch because he actually does throw he throws a good number of strikes um the fastball it's it too many home runs but you know we can you can still work with that with him, it's just, does he actually have a third pitch? I'm not sure right now. You know, the fastball is good. The slider's good. The changeup, we'll see. And uh, what we were talking about earlier, you got to have three pitches. You, you got to have three, at least 50 pitches to get by as a starter, unless you have like pinpoint command. And very few minor leaguers have the level of command you need to sustain with, you know, not having 350 pitches. And so with Fitz, my, my, what I want to see is what does his changeup usage look like during the regular season? And how effective is it? Because, you know, he's going to be against AAA bats. And Worcester is not an easy park to pitch in. You know, it's a hitter-friendly environment, especially when the wind is blowing out because it just turns into a jet stream. And as someone who gave up 22 home runs in AA, if he's not commanding his fastball and then 
he doesn't have a changeup to consistently get left-handed hitters out, there's going to be some red flags there. So that's the thing for me is how does the changeup look, or is there a or this was where the dev staff comes in? Do they start thinking about a different third pitch, whether it be a cut or a split or something like that, with him in order to kind of give him a compliment to his fastball on the slider? Yeah, so that's really the biggest thing for me too. He showed he could eat innings. I mean, he threw 152 and two thirds last year, which I thought was pretty significant. So the ability to throw innings, I think that's a skill too. Being able, like, there are certain guys who you even see at the major league level every year. You can only count on them for like 100 innings. If you're a guy like Nick Pavetta who can go out there and give you 160 plus innings every year, that really is valuable in modern day baseball. Yeah, and you look at like minor leaguers, and few really throw over like 120. So when you're getting the level of innings that you got out of Richard Fitz, I thought that was a huge step for him. Uh, the strikeouts, you know, 163 across 152 innings are fine. I think the biggest question, like you said, is is there a third pitch there? And if it's not a changeup, does he add a cutter? Because he really needs to bridge the gap. The changeup when he threw it didn't have a ton of separation from the fastball. No, and, it was that, not a good pitch. <laughs> so, I mean, when you don't have the separation... Like, it doesn't really matter much anyway, and it didn't have great traits on the changeup. So I think something needs to be shown there. But if you add a cutter, if you add a splitter, like you mentioned, I think he can get pretty interesting because the fastball did tick up a little bit. Yeah, I mean, by the end of the season, it was like 96. Right. So he was like low 90s in 2022, and then he was like consistently sitting like 94 by season's end, which when you're throwing innings and building velo, like huge plus, like – I like to see that he gets a little bit of a natural cut to his fastball. So I wonder like the cutter could be a pretty natural pitch to add there to kind of bridge the velo gap between um, that and his slider, which two plane break pitch. It's anywhere from like 82 to 86. So it depends, but something in the upper eighties, I think would play pretty big for him, but I still think it's kind of 50, 50, whether Fitz ends up in the, the bullpen or as a starter. And I think we'll, we'll see pretty quickly this year in my opinion, on what we think he could be. Just seeing him in AAA and after having at least a little bit of the offseason with the Red Sox development, we'll we'll have a better idea of who he is, I think. Yeah, I agree. And I that I think what you talked about with the velocity band, having that third distinct one is key. Because if he's now, if the new norm with him is that he's going to be, you know, like 93, 95 in that range with his fastball, he's got that slider like 82 to 85. He, he needs something in that in-between range in order to keep hitters off balance and give hitters just another area to worry about. And if it's not going to be a changeup, I think a cutter does make a lot of sense there. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about David Sandlin, so I don't think there's really any more to say with him there. But I, I think probably the most interesting name on this list and, and the one that I'm most interested to see this year is your your Donnie Monegro. And he's someone actually we saw together last year. Um, he was excellent when he got to Greenville. And he kind of had one of those meteoric rises last year where he started the season in the FCL. And by the end of the season, he was one of the better pitchers on the high A team. So he made a lot of movement. He had a lot of movement last year, um, jumping up three levels. But he's also one of the most interesting pitchers. And we saw it in person. He basically pitches backwards. Um his secondary stuff is way ahead of his fastball right now. He's got really good feel for both his chain for both his curveball and a slider, but he barely throws a changeup. I think uh, his changeup usage last year was sub one percent for the season, so he doesn't really throw a changeup. Uh, and he actually threw 
more breaking balls than fastballs last year. He was like 50, almost 58% breaking ball usage, and he was only 42% fastball. So it's not, you don't often see a guy in the low minors who's pitching backwards, but when you have as good of breaking balls as he does, it makes sense. And so for him, it's, we need to find a fastball that works. And I wonder if, you know, he, he dabbled with a sinker last year. He threw the four seam also, neither were that good. What's going to happen here? Um, and I think this is the one where Craig Breslow and co could have the biggest impact because clearly what he was doing last year with this fastball was not working. Uh, he didn't have confidence to throw it by the end of the season. And when he did, it got absolutely destroyed. Like he had a whip of over two on his fastball and he didn't throw it for strikes at all. Um, his strike throwing metrics are worse than Gonzalez and Browse on his fastball. And so when you have that and then you combine it with it's in the dead zone with movement, it's, you know, 94.7, which is fine, but they got to figure it out here. And if they can, he's the one I think could make a massive jump because if you can get him a plus fastball, he's already got the secondary pitches. It's just, that's easier said than done. And so we'll, we'll have to see with him. Uh, what, do, what do you think about Monegro? So yeah, Monegro really wasn't on my radar at all. Um, sitting with somebody probably late May and chatting and they had asked if I had seen Monegro. I hadn't to that point. Uh, just he was at the complex, had not seen much of him. And he was telling me like, this guy's going to be a dude. And so I uh, tuned in very closely when he was called to Salem on MILB TV got lucky we got him in greenville to end the year like that was awesome to see because there was no way i was going to see him in salem they had already come down to columbia there was they weren't coming around the area late in the year even though i really wanted to see him but then we get quite a few starts actually down the stretch and he was a lot of fun he pitches with a high intensity very emotional like he's amped when he's getting that strikeout to end the inning the fastballs you mentioned is interesting uh sits 95 but sometimes fades a so we saw it fade to like 92 later in starts, like when he's getting to the fifth inning. And so the velo, not necessarily as much of an issue, maybe the shape, sometimes kind of a flat pitch. So he's one that the secondaries are really good. You mentioned working backwards. The, the curveball is nasty. He gets so much downward movement with that pitch, throws it in all strikes. He drops it in the top of the zone. He gets hitters to chase it like below the zone too. It's quite an interesting pitch and fun to watch he mixes a slider on occasion but kind of inconsistent uh shorter breaking action i still think he's pretty raw on the mound but he's one that has the ability and upside that if the fastball can progress then he's going to be a lot of fun and probably vault up rankings pretty significantly yeah because he has that natural feel for spin that you just don't see with a lot of pitchers especially guys his age you know he's only 20 years old and to go out there, get up to high A, basically pitching backwards is just really impressive. And it's just, I, I think the the interesting thing, I think he's going to end up throwing a sinker this year. That that that's my that would be my guess right now is what they have him when we see him. It's going to be sinker heavy, but you know we'll see. You know maybe they can unlock something with his four seam too. But yeah, he he's someone if they can just figure that out, then he becomes a really interesting guy and someone that I could easily see jumping into the you know the top fifteen, top ten in the system even if he shows strides in that area. Uh, the final name I wanted to mention uh, to close this up is is someone who 
I think uh, he's been getting a little buzz this offseason. I think Baseball America has talked about him as a sleeper and a few other uh, outlets have too. And he's someone I've talked about as a sleeper on other podcasts and on this one, I think, before too. It's Hunter Dobbins, who ended the year in Portland and was uh, was Red Sox uh, eighth-round pick out of Texas Tech a couple of years ago, um, signed for a pretty small bonus, partially because he was rehabbing from Tommy John surgery, which is why they were able to get him where they did. He, uh, he would have been a much higher pick had he been healthy, but you know he got injured ball in college. And Red Sox were able to benefit by getting him in the eighth round. And he's someone who last year he had a really good year uh, between Greenville and Portland when he came back. You know, he only made 20, he only pitched in 20 games through like 110 innings, but um, got up to Portland, you know, 71 innings, 78 strikeouts, 26 walks. Um, And I think with him, it's just going to be what, (laughs) in a weird way, what kind of pitcher are you like last season? He was, he, he, he's a tinker. He was trying a bunch of different stuff. Uh, he throws a bunch of different pitches, like fastball slider, change up curveball. Um, but from outing to outing, I, I think you weren't, you weren't know which one was going to be the most consistent, you know, the slider usually was, but he also throws it in a really wide velo band. He's like 84 to 90 miles an hour. And so it's, I think you kind of got to cut that down a little bit. Like let, let's, let's hone in on a, a specific velo with that. Um, let's continue to develop the splitter. Cause that was a new ish pitch to him last year. He kind of evolved from a changeup to a splitter. And I, I thought it showed some potential by the end of the season. And, you know, let, let's just, if we can hone those two pitches in and find a way, find a way to hold his velocity with his fastball. Cause we, we talked about it with a few of the other guys, but he's another one whose velo kind of dipped as he went deeper in outings. There's a potential four pitch mix here with, you know, decent command, especially when his for someone with his delivery, which it's not the cleanest delivery. Um, And I'm not sure there's a lot that can be done with that at this point. You know, when you get up to double A and you're used to throwing a certain way, it's going to be difficult to change those mechanics drastically. But if he can stay healthy, um, there are the makings of a four pitch mix here. And he's someone who I, I really like and I'm excited to see this season. Yeah, he's interesting. One of the biggest things that stood out to me was that he did work deep into starts. He averaged 5.6 innings per start, which is pretty big. I mean, especially for somebody that hadn't pitched a ton. He had uh, UCL strain, he was injured. Like, he had only threw 46 total collegiate innings. So to come out and throw deep into starts was a, a big step for him. The command was good. He walked just 6.6% of batters, struck out 26%. Like you mentioned, the... The range on the pitches was interesting with what you would see. The splitter he added this year was was an interesting pitch as well. Uh, had a lot of just nice dropping uh, vertical movement, which it was just inconsistent start to start. Like everything he threw, like you didn't know what you were going to get. I'm really curious to see, like, can he be consistent enough with the command and the innings to, to be a potential back-end starter? That's the question, yeah. I think there's a potential multi-inning type reliever here too, but no, I like Dobbins a lot and he was kind of a pleasant surprise. Like when I saw him this year, it was, was not what I was expecting when he hops in the matter. Like, okay, this guy's actually got some interesting stuff here. So uh, yeah, I'm very interested to see what Dobbins does this year. Yeah. And I think the splitter was a pretty big development for him because he lefties hit him pretty hard last year. Like, 309, 360, excuse me, two years ago, 309, 364 um, on base. Whereas you compare that with this season in 2023, he lefties were 251, 314, 331 slug against him. 
So he, he was much more effective against lefties with that uh, with that splitter. And I, I think that was a pretty welcome development for him with you know, the rest of his arsenal being the fastball, the curveball and the changeup, you know, curveball and uh, slider, excuse me, fastball, curveball, slider. With the curveball and the slider both breaking in towards lefties, he needed something going away, giving them that other east-west action uh, to complement those pitches. And, and I think the splitter with, you know, it's it's got that north-south, but also has a little bit of a uh, little bit of fade on it too. So it gave, gave him something that he, he was kind of get lefties off balance, which is something he needs as a right-handed potential starter. Um, yeah, so that that's kind of the the top guys in the system and the ones that we're most interested to seeing what we think they need to take a step forward. And with the, the, the big wild card here is the new development staff. You know, we just have no idea what their priorities are going to be with these pitching guys, what what their the plans are going to be. And, and I think that's what makes it exciting is, you know, I feel like in past seasons, we've kind of known what we were getting into coming into the season. But with these guys and then all the new guys they've added that we talked about earlier, you know, Sandlin, Judice, guys like that. There's a lot. There's a lot to be determined with this team and uh, with the pitching staffs around here, and so uh, I, I think that makes it for it's going to be a really exciting season on the minor league side with the Red Sox, and uh, there's going to be a chance for someone maybe we didn't even discuss today to break out and kind of establish themselves as, as a top twenty, top thirty type uh, player in the system and potential starting pitching prospect. And I think that's what makes this fun. You know, there's a lot of unknowns this year, and I think for the first time in a few years we're we're at that point. Whereas I know personally for me, I've gone into spring training most years with a pretty short list of guys I need to see and a very good feel for where the system is at position players. I feel very good about where we're at, but pitchers, I just don't know what we're getting into this off season or excuse me, heading into this season. And yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing, uh, seeing the changes put into play and kind of how these guys look when we get back, um, when the minor league games kick off in a little, little less than a month. All right, and that is going to do it for uh, this episode of the SoxProspects.com podcast. Thank you all for listening, and uh, I want to give a shout-out to our new producer, uh, Daniel Fox. This is uh, He's joining the team and going to be a pretty big asset for us going forward with the podcast, so shout-out to him. Uh, thank you for producing. And, uh, of course, you can follow the site on social media at SoxProspects on Twitter, Instagram, Blue Sky, all those fun platforms. Um, you can follow me at Ian Cundell. And uh, Chris, do you want to shout out your socials and uh, what you're doing over at the Dynasty Dugout? Sure. So, yeah, uh, Roto Clegg, C-L-E-G-G on Twitter, pretty much everywhere. You can find me. Uh, mostly just post on Twitter, though. And the Dynasty Dugout, doing prospect coverage. Uh, any fantasy Dynasty coverage you can find there as well. So, yeah. uh, Great stuff, as always. And thank you to the Ludlow Thieves, speaking of great stuff, for our intro and outro music, you can find their stuff wherever you get your um, your Apple Music, iTunes, things like that. And of course, thank you to all of our patrons, uh, supporters at patreon.com, Sox Prospects. Uh, this episode, we want to shout out uh, Carl Meyer, Vincent Bayano, Jose Lopez, Sam, Deb Kendall, Gerardo Iantosca, Ernest Schumer, Kyle C., Tyler Woodrow, and Jeff Trainer. Thank you to our support. And also, Thank you for your continued support, excuse me. And thank you to our newest $5 level supporters, Ryan Meaner and Matthew Levin. Um, as always, uh, your support is greatly appreciated. It allows us to continue to do this stuff um, on a consistent basis. So thank you as always. And I think that's going to wrap it up. Um, thank you everyone for listening. And uh, we'll be back with more of the web's best coverage of the Red Sox organization soon. So keep your eyes and ears on the feed. And uh, thanks everyone for listening.
Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware.